Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, we're so glad that you're joining us here today, and welcome to our new summer series called Heart and Soul. This whole summer, we're going to be focusing on stories of encounter, stories of conversion. We as a church family will look at the many and vast and different stories of how many different people in the scriptures met God, started walking with God. And this summer also, we will hear the grand stories of encounter, not only out of holy history, but we who are speaking this summer from inside of C4 and outside will share our own stories of how we encountered God. Our hope and our prayer is that for the many of you that are seeking, the many of you that join us week in and week out that are skeptical, you can find yourself in these personal and biblical stories so you can meet the one you've been created to know. And for the many of us from different backgrounds that have met Jesus already, we can also, number one, share how we've all met Jesus personally. We can celebrate this summer what God has done in us and through us and around us, but we can also sit back and learn. Because as we hear the stories of how other people have met Jesus and we see how God has worked in their story, we will learn how to speak to a variety of different people. Now, many of us gathering today and listening online would say, we'd use language like this. We would say we are saved. You might use the phrase, we are born again, or we've crossed the line of faith, or we've been converted, or we are disciples of Jesus or followers of Jesus. Something more than a cultural connection, it is a personal commitment. Yet there is something I see in here and I'm deeply aware of as a pastor every time we do a baptism service. Actually, there are many people who choose not to get baptized because of what I'm about to say. And even many that choose to get baptized still feel and think what I'm about to share. And here's what it is. Well, my story's not that great. It's not that epic. It's not that profound. And so I'm not really sure. So you always feel this tension between those that leave another faith or those who have a dark lifestyle or those that have had a radical encounter of Jesus and those that were just brought up in a Christian environment. If you're talking to people who grew up in Christian environments and, and there's an amazing service, and I love our church because our church is filled with people who did not grow up in the church and those who did. But those who did say, well, I wasn't a former drug dealer and I, I, I wasn't at multiple parties and did cocaine and had multiple sex partners and, and I'm not a former Muslim or Hindu and I wasn't some intellectual atheist that radically encountered Jesus or I, I never was that top Bay Street investor that had it all, three cottages and a, a private jet but felt empty and suddenly met Jesus. I'm just a kid that grew up in a Christian home and the home was okay. Sometimes it was good and sometimes it was bad and my mom or my dad or my grandma or my grandpa, they followed Jesus and I decided to do that too. On an emotive level, many of us who that is our story feel second class. We felt let down or even deeper and a little bit more insidious, we feel jealous because we didn't have the moment of bad history and that got to come back and be celebrated as the prodigal coming home. And that is why I've decided to start this series in the most ordinary the most normal, the non-epic, the not oh my goodness, just the normal rhythm place called faith. And I want to start this series with the story of some of us. Some of us that accepted Jesus at three or six or nine or 12 or 15. Now that may not be your story and by the end of the summer we will hear stories from every single background, but for the many of us that this is our story, lean in. When we grew up in a Christian home, we decided the faith of our mom or our dad or our forefathers or mothers was just real. We came intellectually or personally to the decision, actually, though we grew up with it, it's truth. 
And we just decided it was right, and we kept walking in the same direction with and towards Jesus. So here's the question. Where is a great story within the Scriptures that outlines family faith, given faith, holy faith passed down? And the answer is seen in a few small verses that many of us read and most of us miss the power of. If you've got a Bible today, I'd love you to turn to 2 Timothy, whether it's virtual or physical. It will be on the screens if you don't have a Bible today. 1 Timothy 1.1 starts like this. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Jesus Christ. Paul starts this letter like he starts a lot of them. He says, hey, everyone, it's me, it's Paul, I'm writing you again. You know the guy sent out by God to plant churches, and just as we're getting going, I, I got to say this again, because some of you forget this, and it's really important you know my motives. I just want to remind you, this wasn't my idea. Remember, I hated Jesus, and I hated Christians, and actually I was at the first murder of the very first Christian, and, and then Jesus encountered me, and he didn't just save me, but actually he commissioned me to plant churches. So I'm here by his idea, not my idea. I'm an apostle by God's will. Just saying. That's how he starts. And he says, okay, now I want to encourage you. He says, I want to remind you of what not only I have, but what we have, what binds us together, our hope. And he uses this phrase that's going to be key for the whole summer, the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. That is the heart and soul of our movement. The promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, that's what we as Christians call the gospel. This is the good news, the promise of life that is found in Jesus Christ. When he wrote a letter already called 1 Timothy, he said this in 1 Timothy 4.8, physical training has some value, great, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. If you are a Christian today, and some of you are, this promise is something we have now in part and will have fully in the new heavens and the new earth. And the heart, by the way, if you're seeking or a skeptical, the epicenter, the object of our faith, the foundation and hope of everything we believe is Jesus Christ. He is actually the gospel. Now, maybe you've heard the word gospel or you know the phrase gospel music, but you don't know what it means. Gospel just means joyous news. It's a good report, a good story. It's a Greek term that was used when a great war was waged and the herald would run back and say, we won the fight. It was also used in ancient times when a herald would declare that an heir had been born to a king and queen. And so now the universe is being told that actually through Jesus there is a promise of life, which is salvation. Now, if you read Paul at all and the other biblical writers, they use all sorts of metaphors and images to help us understand what the promise and what the results of the promise of life in Jesus have, uh, have been given to us and what, what they look like. We did this series a few years ago about what happened on the cross. And we found out, remember, the image of the law court. We're all declared guilty before God because we've sinned, and yet now we get justified. We're declared not guilty legally because Jesus takes our place, takes the wrath of God, and takes our sin on himself. The world of finance and accounting, we have a mortgage we can never repay. We're in the red so bad we'll never get out. And Jesus fills in the gap and pays off the debt, and he now moves us to the black. In the world of economics, we get bought back. There's this really profound word in the Bible called redemption. And the image is every human being is a slave in a slave market and will never get out. And Jesus, through his death and resurrection, buys us out of slavery and makes us his adopted son or daughter. 
The image of worship when we face God, we're covered at the altar by Jesus because Jesus is called our priest, our mercy seat, our sacrifice, and our forever scapegoat. See, that is what's been done by Jesus for us. He pardons us. He liberates us. He fills in the gap for us. He steps in and takes the bullet for us. He stands for us. He pays the ransom for us. He calls us friends. And also the Bible even uses more evocative language. The Bible says that Jesus is not just our friend or our Lord or our Savior. He's our warrior. He overcame all evil. Jesus drove out the prince of this world. He broke the power, not just of death when he physically came back, or sin. He overcame Satan. That's why in Colossians 3.15 it says that Jesus stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority on the cross and marched them naked through the streets. Anyone want to say amen, by the way, to that? The good news of great joy for all people is that anyone, anywhere, with any skin color, from any background, with any educational level, can be given life, and the promise of life in Jesus will be theirs. That's the amazing good news of Jesus. So with all of that amazing truth, shared by every single Christian on earth, Paul then, writing 2,000 years ago, starts talking to a personal friend of his. And he says this in verse 2, Hey, Timothy, my dear son, O grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Timothy was a younger pastor mentored by Paul. He was like a son of Paul. He was a close friend. And notice how Paul starts. He says, hey, Timothy, I know being a pastor is really difficult. I want to remind you personally that you have grace. You have undeserved mercy just because God loves you. Oh, and you've got peace. You've got shalom. There is a restored relationship between you and God who is Yahweh and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one who himself is equal with the Father. So watch this. In a few small words and verses, God becomes clear, the gospel is clear, and Paul's relationship with Timothy is clear. And then Paul begins to write to give this young pastor courage, to help this young pastor to keep going in the face of internal fights and false teaching and his own personal struggles and the call to understand the Bible and to live under the Bible and make sure the church flourishes and not give in. And he says, hey, Timothy, I just want to say this. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience as day and night, I constantly remember you in my personal prayers. Now, if you're taking notes at all today, so you see that word serve or service, underline it, highlight it, do whatever you want to do with it, because it really matters. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, it was almost exclusively used for worship in the temple in Jerusalem. What priests would do, sacrificing animals and burning incense to God. And so Paul is saying this, my Christian service, even though I'm an Orthodox Jew who's met Jesus, my Christian service has fulfilled and replaced all of that. And this is such needed insight and a tie between what he's about to say and he's about to say next and what he's just said. He says, I serve as my ancestors did. I, Paul, worship like my ancestors did. I walk in the great line of the only true faith, the Jewish faith, as my family did. Now, we need to all catch this today. Whether you're brand new to the faith of Jesus or you're checking it out, Christianity is not a new religion. Christianity is Judaism fulfilled. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. 
The Jewish faith was established by the one true living God, and he chose the Jewish people to show the world a picture and build a foreshadow of what God would do through them, through someone called the Messiah, who's Jesus. See, Christianity is not separated from Judaism. Christianity is the one true living God, the God of the Jews, who through Jesus has now said to the world, you can all come and get to know me. So Paul walking with Jesus isn't something he said, well, I used to be a Jew and now I'm a Christian. He's going, no, no, no. I actually am the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And the Jews who do not accept it have missed God's explicit work in the world. This is why Paul writes these very beautiful and incredibly offensive words, depending where you land, in Romans eleven twenty-five. Oh, Christian brothers and sisters. I want you to understand this truth, which is no longer a secret. I will keep you from thinking that you're so wise. Uh, some Jews, not, no, not, not, notice, not all Jews, some Jews have become hard. They've rejected Jesus until the right amount of people who are not Jews come to God. Then all Jews will be saved, as the Old Testament says, the one who saves from the punishment of sin will come out of Jerusalem. He will turn the Jews from doing sinful things, and this is my promise to them as I take away their sins. For the Jews are fighting against the good news. And I just want to stop for a second. Remember, Paul is a Jew writing this. The Jews are fighting against the good news because they hate the good news, but it has helped you who are what? Not Jews. But God still loves the Jews because he chose them and because his promise to their early fathers. God doesn't change his mind when he chooses men and gives them gifts. No, at one time, you didn't obey God. But when the Jews did not receive God's gift, that's Jesus, you did. And it's because they did not obey. The Jews will not obey now, general statement. God's loving kindness to you will someday turn them to him. Then the Jews may have his loving kindness also. See, God has said that all people have broken his law, and he will show loving kindness to all of them. So Paul comes along, writing this letter, actually, by the way, at the end of his life, and he says, I worship and serve the one true living God of my ancestors, but I now understand that that whole faith is fully understood through the lens of Jesus, the Messiah, and the Son of God. And Timothy, man, I thank God for you. You're not just my protege. You're my friend. You're my coworker in the good news. You're my spiritual son. And I just want to tell you, I, I pray for you day and night, night and day. Does that mean that Paul never ate and slept and he just, no, no, of course. He's just saying his prayer was regular and intense and focused and intentional. But it's not just sort of a spiritual discipline where he's doing it because he has to. You see this in his other writings, but especially here, it is marked with emotion. He really genuinely loves Timothy. He says, recalling your tears, I long to see you so I may be filled with joy. Remember, Paul's an old man at this moment, probably in jail. So then as we're seeing this conversation unfold and reading this story, which most of us be like, yeah, that's sort of okay, we finally arrive, and it's here, that a small group of verses, some of the most important verses about encounter and in conversion in the whole Bible are here, and we miss it because we read it as boring, normal, family-based, and unspectacular. So we move on. See, one of the problems we have as modern Christians is we read the Bible like a comic book. We're always looking for the next epic moment. But actually, God is in the boring moments more than he is in the epic moments. So Paul writes these little words. Verse 5. Oh, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice, which I am now persuaded lives in you also. So let's just stop and let's talk about Timothy's family. 
We only have one passage in the whole Bible other than this one that gives us insight into Timothy's mom and dad and grandma, and it comes from the book of Acts, Acts 16.1. It reads like this, Paul came to Derby, then to Lystra, where he met a disciple named Timothy, and his mother was Jewish and a believer, but his father was a Greek. And the believers at Lystra and Iconium smoked well of him, and Paul wanted to take him along the journey, so he circumcised him because the Jews lived in that area, for they all knew his father was a Greek. And you're all going, what in the world is going on? Okay, let me work this out. Timothy's mom was a Jew. She was a Jewess. And actually, we know that her mom was a Jewess. So within the worldview 2,000 years ago, Timothy would be considered by everyone Jewish. But his dad was what? Greek. That's right. So why in the world does that matter? Well, this means something that most of us miss. And if you're getting bored because you think this is a history lesson, lean back in. It's deeper than this. This means that his mother had sort of abandoned the Jewish faith. She had become what they call a nominal Jew or an apostate Jew, a Jew outside of God's love and God's family because she married someone who did not worship the one true living God, an outsider. So she married one that actually did not give allegiance to the true living God, and actually her family, so her, her mother, and Timothy would be considered spiritually unclean because dad would eat wrong food, wear wrong things, and touch unclean things. So actually this family would be considered lost spiritually and probably not even allowed to go to church, synagogue on Sundays, Saturdays. So Timothy, we also find out, was not circumcised. So that means he's really not in the Jewish faith, but everyone who actually would know him would still consider him Jewish. Now some of you are going, oh my goodness, it's the middle of the summer, the beginning of summer, and what does Timothy's private parts have to do with any of this? I'm totally lost. And every time I bring this up, I have to preach it because it matters. See, (laughs) circumcision was a physical sign of the Jewish faith, and actually it was God's idea. Now, many of us as men go, why couldn't it be the belly button or a nose? Like, please. And many of us who grew up in church, every time we see the word circumcision in Scripture, we just don't have a clue, so we go, I, I, next verse. And, and anyone who's visiting goes, like, are you going to do that to me? Is this a cult? I'm really scared. Like, what's going on? So let me just again work this out. As one scholar puts it this day, this way, no doubt this surgery to the Jewish faith was symbolic of sinfulness, being passed down generation to generation. This graphic symbol of the need for the removing of sin was used by God as a symbol for being a Jew. Now, for many Jews, by Paul's day, the meaning, though, had been forgotten and had been replaced with a sign of salvation and freedom. In other words, I'm not under God's wrath. So here's here's how this breaks down. One summarizes this way. Jews believed, at this time, circumcision secured your salvation. One rabbi writing on his commentary in the book of Moses, world-famous rabbi, said, our rabbis have said no circumcised man will ever see hell. Another wrote, circumcision saves you from hell. It's like a bumper sticker. (laughs) Another one from the Midrash, the oral tradition of the Jews reads like this from Tillam. God swore to Abraham that no one who is circumcised will be sent to hell. So here's why this matters in this conversation. Timothy's mom and grandma are Jewish ethnically and religiously sort of Jewish, Timothy was raised sort of Jewish, but not circumcised, so he's on his way to hell, and his dad is a pagan. To everyone around Timothy, his friends, they'd say, you are a Jew, but everyone in the Jewish community would say, you're not a Jew, you're not saved, and you're going to hell. Talk about a catch-22. 
So in the middle of that family setting, something astounding takes place. Timothy's mom and grandmother come to faith in who? Jesus Christ. Both of these Jewish women encounter Jesus and realize that though they're not totally in their Jewish faith, the Messiah, the Son of God, the fulfillment of their faith is found in him, and they meet Jesus, and then they share Jesus and his story with Timothy. And you say, well, John, how do you know that mom and grandma were telling little Timothy about Jesus? Because one verse before one of the most famous verses in the Bible describing what the Bible is, we read these words in 2 Timothy 3.15. From your infancy, Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Oh, because all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training, and righteousness. So Timothy's mom and grandma and then the church community started showing him out of the Old Testament why Jesus is the fulfillment from infancy, from infancy. So by the time we get to Timothy being a young pastor, somewhere maybe between 25 and maybe even 40, we're three generations deep in the Christian faith. And this is what Paul says. Let me read it again. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, and then your mother Eunice, and I am now persuaded lives in you also. So Timothy's faith is legit, it's real, it's sincere. And Paul says this faith was on, and this, is, this really matters, on the inside of your grandmother and on the inside of your mother. Why does this matter? Because he's already making a point that real faith is an ethnic and real faith is an inherited. You still have to put it inside of you. And he says, now that indwelling faith that was in Lois and Eunice is now inside of you, indwelling you. Now, anytime Paul uses indwelling language, you need to stop and sit back and realize because it's sort of like huge for him. Because what he believes about indwelling faith is so encouraging, so affirming, and life-changing. Here's what he wrote in Romans 8.11. And if the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you, indwells you. He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because his spirit lives in you. In the book of Colossians 3.16, let the message of Jesus dwell among you, in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and, and hymns and songs from the spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. 2 Timothy 1.14, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you, in you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. So when he says that you have indwelling faith, here's what Paul is saying to Timothy. The Spirit of God actually lives in you. This indwelling will lead to your guaranteed physical resurrection no matter how you die and when you die. You will come back like Jesus did. The good news of Jesus dwells in, in you and leads you to worship and encouragement and thanksgiving. The truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus, the truth of salvation dwells in you. And this was passed from your mom and your grandma, but really it's given to you from God the Father through Jesus the Son by the Spirit of God. And then if you just read carefully in between, it's not just mom and grandma who help build his faith and give him faith and pass on faith. It's the church around him. In Acts 16, it says that the believers in that area talked well of Timothy. So he's now in church community. And not only that, this is where Paul goes next. He says, verse 6, For this reason, I want to remind you to fan into flame the gift of God 
which is in you through the laying of my hands, for the Spirit of God does not give us timidity, but power, love, and self-discipline. Now, I just want to stop at this moment and want to say, this is my story. I mean, this is, this is my story. My mom and my dad were Christians their whole lives. They loved Jesus. They've modeled Jesus their whole lives. There was never a time when I was not in a Christian home. Before I was born, my dad at 17 went on missions, all radical for Jesus, went with Operation Mobilization to Europe and was doing all sorts of stuff and then saw my mom in a choir and liked her smile and so they dated through the mail. Some of you don't even know what mail is. It's when you write things to each other. Um, it's okay. It's like DMing but different. And so they dated uh, through the mail and courted for like a year and a half and then my dad came back and still liked my mom's smile in the choir and they got married and then my mom and my dad left and they went overseas again. They lived in Italy they lived in England and Belgium, and they did all this stuff. Then they, then they came back. They had me. My one grandfather used to lead worship in Massey Hall in the 1940s with Billy Graham's team. My great-grandmother was one of the founders of the prayer movement at People's Church in Toronto, which I was just at a few weeks ago. My other grandfather worked for Youth for Christ in Montreal and the Alliance Churches. One of my great-great-aunts was, on, uh, was a missionary in Zaire or Zimbabwe. My great-grandfather was part of the Free Church in Scotland. I come from a minimum of four to six generations of Christians on almost every side. And if you interview all my, interview all my relatives, we got vineyard people and Baptist people and Alliance people and AGC, so we got the a whole dysfunctional family in Jesus, in my family. And my personal journey to faith started very close to here. I was saved at Calvary Baptist Church in Oshawa, our Baptist brothers and sisters just down the street. A Sunday school teacher sat with me at three years old and told me the good news of Jesus and told me about my sin. And I came home and I said to my mom, I need to embrace Jesus. And I do have that moment. Some of you don't. I did have that moment. I knelt down with my mom and I vividly remember it. There was this really, this, this chair and as we knelt down, there was this really God ugly um, velvet. It was a brownie gold if you've lived in the 70s and you millennials are trying to bring it back. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. I've been in therapy for it. Um, if you can meet Jesus in that velvet, you can meet him anywhere. So I, I, I remember I just invited Jesus uh, into my heart with my mom. And that was the beginning of my journey. My dad is this intellectual, uh, deeply emotive, uh, well-known artist who has basically been Thomas his whole life and has de demonstrated to me that you have to have a robust intellectualism and a deep emotion in faith and you can struggle and doubt your whole way and still trust in Jesus. My mom is this just solid, faithful, long-term obedience in one direction woman. <laughs> And then at 13 and at 12, I went to Parkway Bible Church and Colin and Judy were my youth pastors and they baptized me and they called me to ministry. I came to this church at 15 years old and the youth pastor said, have you ever preached? I said, no. He says, well, you're going to start next week. I'm giving you all the new believers. That's how I started to preach in this church in a Sunday school room the size of this small pulpit. And, and then I had all these amazing leaders in my life and friends. Now, was everything in my family amazing and holy and right? Are you joking? No. As I've publicly talked about in our extended family, there's all sorts of really whacked out weird stuff that our family has to wrestle through. Were all my church experiences glorious and holy? No. But that's the point. Just like Timothy's family that was mixed, so the same God uses the good and the bad and the broken and the beautiful in our families to pass on the holy faith. And it's a gift. 
This is my story, and my story is not a second-class story. This is my story, and it is not a lesser story. It's just one of the stories. But at this moment, I have to put something on the table for many of us that are second, third, fourth, or fifth-generation Christians. Because there is this lurking thing that is incredibly dangerous for us. See, many of us that have holy history, you come from Christian heritage and families, you are secretly in the back of your mind angry and jealous that you didn't get to have your moment of fun under the sun and rebellion. You are upset, you long and say it is not fair that you didn't get to dance with the devil and then come back, getting your cake and eating it too. And I just need to say to you, not out of anger, but pastorally, no. Invite the Holy Spirit into that terrible thought now and ask Him to kill it. Be thankful for your holy history. But what a gift, what eternal life that you grew up, not only in church, but you grew up knowing God's Word and having God's Word and Jesus' message was given to you and Jesus' name was on the lips of people around you. There are hundreds of millions of people on earth who don't even truly understand who Jesus is and you take it for granted. Do not harden your heart for what Jesus has given to you. It's Psalm, 70, it's Psalm 73. Oh, surely God is good to Israel, the psalmist writes. To those who are pure in heart, but as for me, well, my foot almost slipped. I, I nearly lost my foothold. I, I, I started envying the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Well, they had no struggles and their bodies are healthy and strong and they're free from common human burdens and they're not plagued by human illnesses. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imagination has no limits. Well, they scoff, and they speak with malice and arrogance, and they threaten oppression, and their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues possess the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance, and they say these words, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything well, this is what the wicked are like. They're free from care, and they go on amassing wealth, surely in vain. I, little Christian, have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. And when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. That, that's a Canadian way of saying I was really, really troubled and angry until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. For us who this is our story we should be profoundly grateful for the gift we've been given, even if it was given by broken people. And this is a call right now at this moment to continue in our most holy faith, to persevere in what God has sovereignly placed in your family. Do not walk away from the gift of faith you've been given. You keep going because now you are the one who's responsible to pass this gift to the next generation. What joy, what love, what privilege. This is intergenerational ethics on a whole eternal scale. Let me ask you this question if this is your story. When is the last time, if ever, that you devotionally just sat down with Jesus and thanked Him that you grew up in church? When is the last time you said, you know what? Thank you that I grew up singing those stupid Sunday school songs. Thank you. Thank you that I did Bible drills or whatever your history, thank you. Because this is the point. You've been given a gift that you can squander because you become jealous of things that will actually not ripple into eternity. Even if your history is messy and mixed and not pure and blended, can you see God's hand? 
Here's another thing. Have you ever done this before? Have you ever gone back to your family or the leaders or the volunteers that passed you faith and just said to them, thank you? Like really, just thanks for that. Uh, There's more. As I was writing this, not just because the passage flows in this direction, there's like a holy unction behind this. To you who are grandmothers, you who love Jesus as grandmothers, you that pray and you, you are desperately trying to show your grown kids or their children or others Jesus, I'm supposed to say to you today, God sees you. God hears you. God is with you in your grandmothering. You keep going. You be a Lois in this generation because they are a rare commodity that we desperately need. To all the mothers who are here today, biological or spiritual, that love Jesus and pray for kids and point them to Jesus, I want to remind you of something that's of such significance. You spend 3,000 hours a year with your children. Our youth pastors or our volunteers in this church will spend 40 to 50 with them. You are the difference maker in faith, not us. 3,000 hours versus 40. And if you believe that the church is some gas station, that we're going to do all the filling, you've made a terrible mistake. You are called to be Eunice, to share God's word and to model Jesus' love. And you're like, well, I don't understand. It's okay. Just be authentic in your faith. Show your kids Jesus. Read the Bible to them. Tell them how you became a Christian. Tell them about your struggles. Don't be afraid as a mom to tell your children that you have doubts in the faith. The more honest you are as a mother with your children about your struggles and your wins and your spirituality, the more your children will respect you and will walk after you in time. It is when the expectations are too high that all things walk away. Oh, did you notice? No mention of Timothy's dad. He's a Greek. That's all we know. You know, I'd like to say this. I have the great privilege of traveling the world, and not just traveling in many cultures, but I have the great privilege of being in many churches of many backgrounds, Anglican and Baptist and Pentecostal and independent that are filled with all different ethnicities. And here's the one thing I have observed since I've grown up traveling the world my whole life is this. Almost all churches globally are filled with mums and grandmothers and children and so few men. Why? Well, this is a generic statement, but men, inherently, many of us believe that we cannot show weakness, and we also have to bear all things, and we are responsible to take care of things. Well, it's very hard to become a Christian if you think you're supposed to bear all things and you can show no weakness, because Christianity declares you're not only weak, you're spiritually dead, and you need a Savior, and you always need help. Churches are not filled with men because of pride. And I just want to say this, for any man within the sound of my voice today, any one of us, I don't care if you're 14, 17, 19, 80, 42 like I am, let me just say this, (laughs) whether you have biological family or not, don't be like Timothy's dad. You show your family Jesus. Don't be ashamed of Jesus as a man. You read scripture to your children, not just your wife. You tell your family how you met Jesus also. 
As Christian men, we need to be honest and open and unashamed and humble and meek about the gospel of Jesus. And don't buy into this weird thing that I find almost in every culture that somehow we believe women are more spiritual than men. Garbage. Fathers and grandfathers, God sees you too. And your biological and spiritual children and great-grandchildren and grandchildren and nieces and nephews need you to pass on the holy faith like everyone else. And God is giving you the opportunity to give them Jesus at a young age. I love what one pastor just preached a few weeks ago on Father's Day in a very different church than ours in Texas, so fundamentally different than ours. He said it is far more important what you leave in your children than what you leave to your children. One last thing. Family faith still always moves to church faith. Timothy was mentored by Paul and, and others, just not mom and dad. And so I want to say this to everyone, whether you're watching this online or live right now or somewhere else, to every one of you that serves, and I mean this, to every one of you that serves, every youth volunteer in this church, every C4 Kids worker that holds babies and you pray in Jesus' name, you make it through. <laughs> every single connect group leader in our church, you may never see the results of hundreds and hundreds, thousands of kids and teens. But be faithful because this isn't just about this generation. This is about generations you will never see till the new heavens and the new earth. Don't give up serving. Don't think it's not worth it in the end to have another group of screaming 20 children and you're trying to tell them about Jacob and you're not sure if they're listening don't give up on junior highs when they are obsessed by unicorns and you're trying to tell them about the cross. Why? Because I am living proof. Sunday school teachers, parents, youth pastors, volunteers, and I have the privilege now to speak to thousands of people, oh glory to God, about the good news of Jesus Christ because of the faithfulness of my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents and my youth pastors and my volunteers. Do not, do not neglect the gift of faith. Do not demean family past faith. And if you've listened to this whole sermon this morning and you are actually saying, but I'm the first generation, good. Now you get to become Lois and you get to become Eunice for your generation starting right now. So let us take a moment. Would we all stand? And would many of us be able to say thank you again to recover the joy of our salvation? on this summer Sunday. God our Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who uses all sorts of methods and ways to bring us to yourself. Here's what we pray. Number one, for we who come from holy history, forgive us for being jealous of evil and wickedness. And Lord, for any person who in the back of their mind, they're formulating plans or thoughts to go and do these things. Stop them now in Jesus' name. And for others of us at this moment, like right now, who grew up in these environments and these homes, thank you so much, Lord, for the faith that was passed to us. 
Help us to model Jesus in our character to our children. Help us to do it in love in our grandchildren. Lord, we want to take a moment, uh, if they're living, to pray that you would bless and comfort every person that has ever served any of us in this church. Would you open up opportunities for others to go thank them for their amazing work? But now I pray, Father and Son, send the Spirit of Jesus Christ upon our whole church, every mother, every grandmother, every father, every uncle, every aunt, every volunteer in our church, and would the Spirit of God come in such great power that we would be reminded why it is worth our time and our money and our energy to keep serving children and teenagers and young adults and small infants because actually the stakes are so high. Come, Holy Spirit, and empower us. All praise be to God the Father who elected us before the beginning of a time and all praise be to the Son who not only died for us but prays for us at this moment and all praise be to the Holy Spirit that binds us together in this church and with every other church. Thank you, God, for this most holy faith you've given us. Oh, God, would you continue to pass this faith in our generation. Amen, amen, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.